So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Um, if this was student ministry, I'd ask if somebody had that memorized by now. But, uh, uh, but let's read that together real quick. Um, this forms the foundational verse for everything we've been talking about the last several weeks. Uh, and Paul says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. In context, Paul is writing uh, to the Ephesian church, and he's laid out in three chapters uh, theology and doctrine and what Christians should believe. And then the following three chapters of that letter, he describes what the Christian life should look like in light of such doctrine. And here he says within these uh, this list of things that we should do in the new life of Christ, in Christ that we have, he says, then let the thief no longer steal. We've talked about how we are all thieves to some extent, uh, but rather let him labor, let him do hard work, um, and then let him do honest work with his own hands. And then last week, the emphasis was placed on the next two words, so that. You and I, we come to a place where we... we, we Come to Christ and the old passes away, the new comes. We should walk in that newness. And in this case, we don't steal from one another. We do hard work with our own hands that is honest work so that we may have something to share with anyone in need. The thrust of this verse is outward. And that's the life of the Christian. That's, that, is, that is our faith. It produces in us Christ-likeness. And Christ never looked inward to his own being and who he was other than to know who he was. But his purpose was to go out. His purpose was to come from heaven down here. His purpose was to go to the cross. Jesus was always moving forward to a purpose to serve the Father. And through that purpose to save you and I. So that you and I can come to him in faith and be made new and then do the thing in which he did. And in this case, we should do honest work so that we have something to share. Now last week, Brandon started here with this back half of this verse, but he settled more on saving. Right? If we're going to share something, we have to have something to share. So therefore, we need to be saving in order to have something to give away. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we looked last week, Paul encouraged the Corinthians to set something aside every Sunday. And the purpose there was, was by way of command, set something aside because I'm going to come or I'm going to send somebody at some point to gather or collect that. So you set it aside weekly, he says, you save weekly so that when we get there to receive the collection, you don't have to go scrambling trying to find something to give. You are prepared to give because you have saved. Now what was it specifically for? It was for the church in Jerusalem. Is there is a need that is going to arise, a famine is going to happen in Jerusalem, and they're aware of that famine, so a need is known, and the church then is encouraged to provide for that need. Now we're going to pick up this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, you can go and turn there. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we see Paul, uh, he's continuing to write this letter to the Corinthian church, but he points out something here. There's, there's a, a, a bit of time has gone by between the instruction, in a way, for collecting this and saving, putting things aside, and when that work began, 
and then where they're currently at. It was about a year later, we know this from verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 8. Paul says, in this matter, I give my judgment. He says, this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So he points out to the Corinthian church, hey, it's been a year since we started having this conversation. It's been a year that you're, you're, you should have been saving. You should have been putting things aside for an entire year. But it seems as if they haven't done that. It seems as if a year has gone by and they're not prepared with anything to give. But what Paul points out here to them is he points out that they had a desire to do it. But the question that can come to mind is why the delay? Why is it taking a year from instruction before anything begins to happen? Warren Wiersbe notes this on this point. He says, one of the reasons is the low spiritual level of the church. He says, when a church is not spiritual, it is not generous. And as we study the letters to the Corinthians, we see that this is a church that struggles deeply with Christian living and what it looks like to follow Christ and live out that faith in a way that is different or set apart from the rest of the world. But we see an immature people. So we can see what's causing the delay in doing the thing that they're called to do and commanded to do. We're not saving because we're not in a place where we're spiritually mature. So we're not generous in that because whenever there's any level of immaturity, where do we look in that immaturity? Think of your children. Think of teenagers. Think of, think of adolescents. What happens when we have an Easter egg hunt? All those eggs are out there. What happened to that, to that bag, to that basket? It overflows. And if we're not careful, we'll have a bunch of kids running around and we're doing it for a fun time. And they're just snatching up every egg they can find. And they're filling that bag and they're putting eggs on top of eggs and eggs are falling out. Then they're picking those eggs back up. Now, in some ways, yes, it is fun to do that thing. But in their immaturity, what are they not seeing? They're not seeing the abundance that they have. There is the inclination to continue to get more for themselves. So we're not saving to give away. We're storing up for ourselves. And this is an issue that Paul will begin to address. But he points out for the church at Corinth. He says, you had a desire to do this. What happened? Now in 2 Corinthians 8, beginning in verse 1, Paul gives two examples to the church in Corinth. As it pertains to sharing and giving. So beginning in verse 1, he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now the churches in Macedonia, they include cities such as Philippi, Thessalonica, uh, Berea, uh, Achaia. Um, that was which it was to the south. But um, in these churches, I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among them. Then verse 2, for in a severe test of affliction, uh, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So Paul points out something in the church of Macedonia. He says that these, they're not a wealthy people in Macedonia. They're a poor people. They have extreme poverty. But out of that poverty overflows a wealth of generosity. Now, Macedonia lost the majority of its wealth under uh, Alexander the Great about 400 years prior just because of the affliction to which they were under whenever he's, his armies came through. But that along with other persecution, high taxation from the Romans when the Romans took over, 
but it left these people in extreme poverty. But that was not at all an excuse for this people to not give. And here's an interesting point. This is an aside that just comes to mind right now. Is peoples that are in poverty are oftentimes, as you look the world over, some of the most faithful people. Why would that be that people in poverty are the most faithful? Because people in poverty are the most dependent upon the provision of the Lord. They're daily in need of what only He can provide. But we have countries of wealth, such as the country in which we live, to which we now find some of the most spiritually depraved people because we believe we have all we need. We don't need a God to provide for us because we've provided for ourselves. Now that just comes to mind in terms of the difficulty, we'll call it difficulty, in which we can find ourselves in giving. Verse 3, he goes on, he says, For they gave according to their means. He says, As I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. So he begins to point out, Hey, I didn't, I didn't twist their arm. I can testify to you that they gave of their own means of their own accord. They decided amongst themselves to give in the manner in which they did in the midst of their poverty and abundance of wealth of generosity came. They were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Note, note, note what's happening. They're begging to take part. There's no inclination of, hey, somebody else will do that. None whatsoever. Can I give more? They're, they're, they're begging to give and contribute to this need. Verse 5, and this, not as we expected. So as a pastor, Paul, Paul, or missionary, he's going into this country and he sees the poverty in it. He is not expecting what he's seeing. But at the same time, in the midst of that lack of expectation, it is being far exceeded because of God's grace amongst these people. So it's not as expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. If you have something to mark with, mark that in your Bible. The difference for this church, these people in Macedonia, is that they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. The first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The second is like it, you love your neighbor as yourself. If there is a clear understanding of, of our standing between the Lord or before the Lord, we have clarity with how we give outward to others. Verse 6, accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnest, and in our love for you, See that you excel in this act of grace also. So in this first example, you have this people that in their poverty, they have this wealth of generosity that comes. Is there is a begging to, to take part in that and to give earnestly. It blew Paul's expectations. But he understood where they gave it. They gave first to the Lord and then to other people. And then Paul tells the church in Corinth, you, you do likewise. He says, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Now, one can argue, and one people have, I have, 
even in times where I haven't had much to give, and I can think, well, is my service to the Lord, is my spiritual gift, shouldn't that suffice for my giving? I serve here, there, and I'm taking a part. Can that, cannot, that not be part of it, my time, my talents? Does that take care of my giving to the church? I have an illustration here for this. This is Charles Spurgeon. He tells of receiving a, uh, a wealthy man's letter uh, invitation to come and preach at his rural church. And the purpose in this letter, this, this wealthy man writes to um, Charles Spurgeon, and he's wanting Charles Spurgeon to come and speak at this church so they, they can take this offering. And the offering, the idea is the offering is going to be uh, much more because Charles Spurgeon is the one that is coming and speaking. And this man, he told Spurgeon that he was free to use, when Charles Spurgeon would come, he is free to use his country house, his townhouse, or his seaside home, to which Spurgeon wrote back, sell one of the places you own and pay the debt yourself. Now for a moment, if we think about that, hang on. That's Really? Sell one of your houses, then meet the need? Well, why do I really have to sell my house? I think of the rich young ruler, in which Jesus said, you've kept all the law, sell everything you own, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. Now God is not necessarily calling every one of us to do that thing, but here in this example, you have this wealthy man, he's writing to Charles Spurgeon, and I'd imagine this wealthy man is in the church, he knows what's going on in the church, he wants to help the church, he sees the need, and he takes it upon himself to write to someone, to bring someone within their midst so that this offering may come. Please come, use any property that I have. But Charles Spurgeon, to understand and see, you have three properties. You could sell one of those and meet the need yourself. But the point is, is that man didn't even think about it. It didn't cross his mind. Why? Because our inclination is to keep what we have. Somebody else is going to do the thing. The people in their poverty in Macedonia were begging to give. This man wanted someone else to come to garner out of his church giving. Instead of this man seeing, I have means to give myself and leading from that direction. So it's not our time, it's not our talents, because oftentimes we use our time or talents not for the glory of God. We can use them for ourselves in many ways, if not careful. But that never suffices for giving to the church and financially. Well, Paul continues, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 8. He says, I say this not as a command. This is important. A lot of all of that, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Now, Paul's not trying to lay a guilt trip on the church at Corinth. He's trying to tell them, hey, I'm, I'm not commanding you here, but you should prove the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. That you're not hypocritical in your love. You're not saying, hey, I love people, but you're not doing anything to help people. When you have the means to help people. 1 John 3, 16 through 18 says this, that by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the, for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. 
Now, as Paul is writing there, he, 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 he says, little children. You see where he sees the maturity of the people he's writing to. He's writing to little children, not grown, mature believers. And he's saying, hey, if you have the world's goods, you see a need, you should be meeting that need. But if you close your heart off against them and you expect someone else to share and someone else to give, how does God's love abide in you? It's the tension that John is purposely creating in our hearts, not by way of a guilt trip, but that we would seek to reconcile what God has done for us and what he's called us to be doing for others. So the first example is the Macedonians and the giving, the humble giving that they would give. The second example we'll find in verse 9 and following. We'll see if you can guess who this example is. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. I want to read that verse one more time. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So the second example that Paul gives is the greatest example we will ever have, is that Jesus Christ left heaven, the riches of heaven, to become poor. If Jesus left heaven and he came and royalty as a king on earth, he would still be leaving riches and come to poverty. You ever think about that? Our perspective is not his, but we oftentimes view everything through ours. But nonetheless, Jesus left heaven and he came to poverty as we understand poverty so that we might become rich. And again, if our perspective is this world's riches, we've missed the purpose for which he left riches to come to poverty. You see the picture? The example that Christ set in us, that humbled himself, that he wouldn't, he wouldn't seek to be like God, but he would come in the form of a servant. So yes, two great examples. But given their spiritual immaturity, what Paul really appeals to these people is not just the next, the next level up. It's not to go from infancy to a toddler level maturity. What he shows them is the bar in these verses. Paul raises the bar to what it is. This is the standard to which you and I should rise. If we are to walk away from the old and we're to take on the new and walk in the new and what the Christian life should look like, Paul says here is the bar. The bar is giving as an act of grace. Four times in these verses, in verse 1, he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given. Verse 6, We urge Titus that, he is, that as he has started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Verse 7, See that you excel in this act of grace also. Verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is layering through this exhortation is one of grace, is that our giving is an act of grace. And that understanding should change everything about how we view what we believe is ours and what we should be giving away to someone else. Who owns the things that you have? If you have the correct perspective, you do not own it. It has been entrusted to you. We've talked about that in previous weeks, that we're to be stewards of what God has given us. And as we give to others, it becomes an act of grace. 
The word in the Greek is charis. It means goodwill, loving kindness, and favor. And these, these attributes are specifically of God in the meaning of this word and the use of this word. But goodwill, loving kindness, favor. But you and I love because he first loved us. You and I forgive because he has forgiven us. You and I are to give because he has given to us. We extend goodwill, loving kindness, and favor. We give as an act of grace because of the undeserved divine grace that you and I have received. We didn't, we, we, we didn't receive grace based on our merit because we're so awesome. No, God gave as an act of grace in his loving kindness, in his goodwill, in his favor to you and I, salvation to people that were absolutely undeserving of it. Deserving death, the complete opposite of the life that we're given. So therefore, within us should be prompted or produced in receiving that grace, a willingness and a desire to give away that grace to others. And that comes in the form of the way we share and the way we give. Verse 10, back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, And in this matter I give my judgment, this benefits you, who a year ago stated, started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. Now verse 11, he says, So now finish doing it as well. He says, finish doing it. It's been a year. You desired to do it when you started. Quit, quit delaying and doing it. Finish doing it as well so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Now notice what he says, out of what you have. Verse 12, he says, for, in the readiness, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So the expectation is we don't give of what we don't have. We can take that back to last week. And saving, we have an inability to give what we don't have. But God understands that. I'm not asking you to give what you don't have. I'm asking you to give out of what you do have. Verse 13, for I do not mean that others should be eased and burdened by you, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness is that we're all the body of Christ and all of us have needs and those needs differ from season to season, time to time. And he's getting to the point that we give now with the means with which we have to meet the need that we see with the understanding that one day we may have a need and the body's going to provide for us in the same way. And it goes back to work. As we talked about weeks ago, we do work and we carry our load as part of the body and the role that we have in it. The same, it's no different in our giving. So Paul encourages the Corinthians to give out of their abundance, not to make Jerusalem rich and lazy. Verse 15, as it is written, Paul says now, he says, Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. He's quoting... Exodus 16, 18. So Paul's point here is that property and possessions is like manna from heaven. God instructed the people to go out and gather enough for that day. As it pertains to manna that miraculously fell from heaven. If they gathered any more than a day's worth of manna, it would spoil. 
It would not be usable two days later. But miraculously, on the Sabbath, where they're not going to gather, on the sixth day, they would gather enough for two days. And miraculously, it would last for two days. Outside of that, it would only last for one. God provides what is needed for the day. So he's saying, Titus is coming. Be ready to prove your love and your commitment. When Titus gets there, it's his encouragement. You have the example in the Macedonians. You have your example in Christ. We should be giving. And Titus is on his way. Be ready when he gets there. Now, five points we'll take out of this. And it's, it's actually the same five points as last week. Um, just as it pertains to giving instead of saving. So last week, points one and two, was saving is wise. Um, so this week, it's giving is wise. Point number two is hoarding is foolish. So giving is wise, but hoarding things, storing up things is foolish. Second Corinthians chapter 9, if you have your Bible, flip over there to chapter 9. The rest of our time is really going to camp there. But beginning in verse 6, Paul says this. He says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. It's a simple farming illustration. The more you sow, the more you're going to have to reap. But you can't store up what you don't reap, and you can't reap what you do not sow. Any farmer understands this. If you plow the ground up and you do the work of plowing the ground, but you don't put any seed in the ground, you're not going to reap any kind of harvest. You did work for nothing. So in order to store up, you have to reap. In order to reap, you have to sow. But we also store up seasonally so that we have something to sow when the time comes. And that goes back to saving. A farmer has a storehouse to store food and store grain for the season in which there's no growth. But to prepare for and have something when the next season comes to sow that in the ground to produce once again. So what are the things that we reap as it pertains to our giving? When we sow and we give, we should reap things. What are those things that we reap? Well, one is blessings. You and I, from a practical standpoint, we reap blessings when we give to others. The blessings that exist there are joy that we experience in our giving. I mean, has anybody ever gave anything away? Have anybody ever met a need and you just felt horrible about meeting that need? No, that doesn't exist. That's weird. I don't think there's a person on the planet that would meet a need and just, oh, need met. No. We experience joy. And even the most gruff person, they may attempt to deny it, but they experience joy. There's, there's happiness. There's blessing. When we lessen ourselves and we humble ourselves and we give to others. So we experience joy for ourselves. But we also reap the joy and the well-being of others, of course. Anybody ever had a mead net? A mead net? (laughs) A need met? Real show of hands on this one. We've all, at some point, hopefully, had a need met. How did you feel when that need was met? Oh my goodness, why'd you meet my need? No. No. Now, some of us, even in our pride, can push back. No, no, I don't want that. Don't, don't, don't give me that. Uh-uh. And we try and push it away. And we try and rob that person of the blessing of blessing you. 
I've done it. You've done it. Don't deny it. We've all, at some point or another, we've tried to push back someone providing for a need. But when we accepted it, how did we feel? We felt joyful, thankful. There's gratitude that someone would meet that need. Other blessings that we reap is the salvation of others. I think of just the video and the shoe boxes. is just a small box with some toys in it taken to a village in the Amazon jungle and some child gets this and it's full of stuff that they've never seen before and it provides opportunity for the gospel to be shared in this child's life and they can make the connection between the gift they just received and the gift that God had given in his son and they come to salvation. That's a blessing that is reaped when we give. Discipleship of others as well. As we give, we bring people along. People respond to giving and learn to do likewise. Other things we reap is rewards in heaven. Proverbs eleven eighteen: The wicked earns deceptive wages, but the one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. One day you and I will be judged according to what we say and do in this body, whether good or bad. There is reward for the saints and what we do in our giving for the good of others and not ourselves. We also reap resources needed to sow again later. I can promise you if we give in our poverty, if we give when it may be difficult to give, what are we sowing as we're giving? Yes, we're meeting a need, but even in our own hearts, we're sowing trust in the Lord. We're sowing contentment. And when we give in that way, the Lord is faithful and He promises to provide for you and I. So we're reaping trust once again. And you see the cyclical thing that happens in our hearts. When we trust the Lord, we act on that trust and we give things away to other people. Sometimes when we don't have as much to give, but the Lord provides and it just folds back on itself over and over. And we're sowing in righteousness and we're reaping trust and contentment from the Lord to do it again and again and again. And this leads to the third point, number three, is giving should be consistent. It should be consistent. It should be consistent in time as well as manner. But if you want to harvest, you should plan to put seeds in the ground. Amen? Otherwise, you're not going to get it. So it should be consistent in frequency of our giving and also the manner in which we give. Verse 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul says, each one must give. Underline must. If we stopped right there, tension is created in us. Must give. Mm. Sometimes we don't like commands such as that. But if we continue following on with what he says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. God places on us a responsibility to give according to what our heart would give. But the question becomes, who's in charge of our heart? He says, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So our giving reveals our heart. It's the idea. Other places in Scripture we've talked about in the past, if you want another condition of your heart, record what you say, then play that back later. That's a good indicator of what your heart is. But also you want to know where your heart is, look at the way you give. And it will reveal what is in your heart. It is the disposition of our hearts that concerns the Lord. It is not what we actually give. It's our heart. All of this is a heart issue. But now no one should say, and many people have, 
All the church, all the church wants, does is they want my money. At least once a year, they come up and they start talking about money because they just want my money. Is oftentimes what we can think because, again, our mindset is on our money. But giving is not about coercion. He says it is not, we're not to give reluctantly or under compulsion. So it's not about coercion, it's about obedience. When we teach here, when I teach here, I'm not telling you, I'm not commanding you to give because I desire for you to give. I'm telling you what God's word says about giving. And God's word says that we should be giving. And we should be giving as our heart prompts us to give. And then some others you may hear have said before, give until it hurts and then give some more. Becomes a litmus test for where your heart is. Give until it hurts and give some more. That's not a biblical concept. If you've ever been told that, God's heart is not for you to give until it hurts and then give some more after that. If we look at Jesus Christ's example, yes, he gave until it hurt and then he suffered and died on the cross. But that's not God's desire for you. He says that God loves a cheerful giver. Nowhere does the Bible ever say anything about the pain and difficulty to which God endured when he gave his son. You never find that in Scripture. That it was so difficult for God to give his son. No, God gave his son out of the love that he had for his creation and his desire to see them renewed and restored to him. Not because it was difficult for him, because of the love that drove him to do that thing. What was it the angel said? He said, peace on earth and good will toward men. That's what God gave. God gave his son out of his good will, his loving kindness and favor as a holy example of his divine grace. Our giving should always find its source in the same place, a cheerful, loving heart. And number four, there's freedom in determining what you give. So we're free to give according to what our heart would say. So there's freedom in that what we decide to give. There's no dogmatic stance on you to give this much. Now, there's this Old Testament instruction of a tithe. Let's say we've all heard of a tithe, and I would say we give tithes. But in the Hebrew, the word for tithe is aser. And it means literally, take the tenth part. So God's instruction in the law to the people is that they would give a tenth of what they produce, a tenth of their grain, a tenth of their crop, a tenth of their wealth, whatever they earn, they're to give a tenth. You take the tenth part of whatever it is and you give that to the Lord. That was the Old Testament command. But when we look to the New Testament, the picture changes significantly. Jesus only mentions the word two times through the Gospels. Only twice. And each time he mentions the word tithe, he mentions it in connection to a rebuke of the Pharisees and their hearts and the manner in which they would tithe. In Luke chapter 18, it's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. This is the parable where you have the tax collector where he's there at the temple and he's praying, thank you God that I'm not like this tax collector right here. And then he boasts in himself. Boasts in his own glory. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Thank you God, I'm not like this tax collector right here. 
But what was it? The tax collector responded. The tax collector stood far off. He breathed his breast and he cried out to the Lord, have mercy on me, on me, a sinner. And we had this picture between a humble heart understanding his need for Christ and need for God. And you have this religious, self-righteous religious leader who thinks, I tithe all the time. I fast twice a week. I got it together, God. Thank you for your awesomeness and how awesome I am. That I'm not like this guy right here. But the second time is in Matthew 23, Verse 23 and 24, we will read this together. Uh, Verse 23 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. You have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. I'm not as sure at all what that phrase meant in the first century, but I imagine it stung. But he calls them hypocrites. You tithe mint and dill. You tithe. You give of the tenth. You do all the things the law requires, but your heart is far from me. So he mentions them tithing. But what is wrong here? It seems they didn't consistently give, or they did consistently give, but their hearts were consistently in the wrong place. So in this, we would ask the question when it comes to tithe, was Jesus making a case that we should give a tithe, that we should give 10% with a true heart? Is the standard 10%? I would believe no. If anything, you look at Jesus in the gospel, yes, he came to fulfill the law, but he raised the bar in every area in which the law determined something. So a tithe, it's not, if you, if you give 10%, give 10%. Have you so landed that in your heart? That's fine. That's, that's not what I'm saying. And that's not what Jesus is saying, but that's not the standard. If we believe religiously and traditionally that I'm to give a tithe because that's what's required of me, and that's my heart to just do only what's required, then your heart may be out of place. But if our heart is to give beyond that, give out of my means, if my means carries more than 10%, then give more than 10%. But Jesus was talking to self-righteous Pharisees. Here Paul is talking to the church who is meant to be humble, being created in the likeness of the Lord. But to commend tithing as the ideal simply doesn't capture the New Testament view of discipleship. And here's some examples why. Uh, in Luke chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, this is John the Baptist. He's addressing the crowds who desired baptism. He says this, and the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. So here you don't see 10%, you actually see 50%. Someone's got two tunics, you're to share. How do you share a quarter of a tunic? No, you give the whole tunic, so give 50%. In Luke chapter 19, verse 8, Zacchaeus, the tax collector. I think it's interesting that Luke in chapter 18 speaks of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Then in chapter 19, he points to the uh, salvation um, of a tax collector. And his response, what does Zacchaeus do? Um, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, uh, the half of my goods I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So you see half of my goods, so you got 50%, not 10%. But then in the restoration of this, his, his fraud, 80%. Fourfold, I will give back. Not 10, 
50% of what he had, 80% of what he stole. Matthew 19, verse 21, this is the rich young ruler. We mentioned him earlier. He thought he kept the whole law. Jesus said to him, if you would, um, if you would be perfect, go sell what you have or sell what you possess and give it to the poor that you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. So there's 100%, not 10%, 100%. Luke 14, the cost of discipleship. So therefore, if any of you does not renounce all that he has, cannot be my disciple. Again, 100%. Notice he says there, it's very important. He says, renounce. It's a parable that Jesus told about the rich young ruler in an effort to teach how we can hold on to what we have, but the cost of discipleship, Jesus does not say that anyone who does not give all that they have. No, he says renounce. I believe there's a difference between giving all that you have and renouncing all that you have, understanding that all that you have is from the Lord. You have that to steward that, but if that having that holds you in a place where your heart desires that instead of the Lord, your treasure is out of place, you can't serve two masters and all those things, and you're not going to give. But 100% should be on the table, church. And that's a posture of our heart, and that's even tough for me. I think about the state of the economy and the world in which we live and the price of goods. My budget is blown from one quarter to the next. I'm sure your budget is blown. If you don't know your budget is blown, you're not budgeting and you're not saving. And we can go back to weeks before. We won't go backward. I want to go forward this morning. But 100% of what we have should be on the table. And if it's not on the table and we're holding something back, we should be checking our heart before the Lord. And we find, we looked weeks ago, just to revisit it real quick, Acts 2, verse 44, in the early church. All who believed were together and had all things in common, and they sold their possessions and goods and distributed them to all as any had need. In 434, there was not a needy person among them, for as many uh, as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. You see, 100% of what they had was on the table to meet needs that existed among them. Last week, Brandon talked of the poverty gospel and the prosperity gospel. But he noted that neither one of them was the true gospel. You're not more righteous because you're poor. And you're not more blessed because you're wealthy. Those things have nothing to do with the gospel. They have everything to do with our flesh, but nothing to do with gospel. The true gospel is centered on Christ's redeeming work on the cross. His gift given freely. How is it that these people, these Zacchaeus and these others, how is it that they give beyond 10%? It's because they understood the grace that they have received. The act of grace that the Lord did on their behalf. Zacchaeus was a crooked man. The fact that he would say, anything that I have defrauded, I'll give back 80 times over. He's going to such extreme because he stole in such an extreme. But that's the difference that the Lord made in his heart, is he understood the grace in which he received. You're coming to my house today? What? Climb up in a tree to try and get a glimpse of Jesus in the midst of a crowd because he was such a short man. But Jesus knew exactly where he was going that day. He was going to Zacchaeus. He had a divine appointment with this tax collector to redeem him and set his heart differently 
because of the grace that he would receive. Verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 9 says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency, that's all you need, in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Go back. I want to read that one more time. Mark these words all. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times. What's included in that? Everything. There's nothing that's off the table. There's nothing that exists on this side of heaven, in heaven, that doesn't correspond to our hearts and the way we are to look outward and give to others. All grace abounds, all sufficiency, all things at all times. You may abound in every good work. And we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good those good works. Ephesians 2.10 Verse 9, as it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Paul's quoting Psalm 112, verse 9. He has distributed freely. Giving to the poor doesn't make one righteous, but it is a reflection of our standing and right view of God. Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. Not consuming for sowing and an increase of harvest and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So God doesn't give more so that we can consume. God doesn't give more so that we can keep in store. God gives us more so that we can plant. The whole purpose. Every member of his body is an extension of his grace. Verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. All of this isn't to prop us up. Look at everything. Look at the philanthropy. I shouldn't have even attempted that word at this point. Philanthropy. Dare you ought to try and say it. Not right now. But we're enriched in every way to be generous in every way. And this produces thanksgiving to God. God is the one that's glorified, ultimately. And the more generous we are, the more it produces thanks. Therefore, the last point, number five, personal giving should be God-centered, not us-centered. That is the reason why Jesus chastised the Pharisee, because everything they did was them-centered. Verse 12 of 2 Corinthians 9. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So it's not just talking about financial support here. Time, efforts, etc. These things should be made outside of the commonwealth of the church. We are to meet the needs that exist here with one another, but we also exist for the good of those people that are not in this room. So that those people that are not in this room may give thanks to God and experience salvation in God and come in and experience discipleship in God and then become a part of that commonwealth to support itself but also to continue to go out more so to give and meet needs others. So it's seeing a need in the community, in the schools, in the parks. We shouldn't need a day in Stone Point Serves once a year to do a project outside. And we don't. We just have this past... Saturday, yesterday morning, men within the body came together and we went and served in various projects around Wills Point and, and Edgewood in the area. And it was a joy 
to, to, to weed eat around someone's house, but also to, to, to talk and encourage a single woman who it's difficult for her to get out and to do this work. And I'm sowing in that joy and the thankfulness and gratitude that exists within her. So we meet needs and praise proceeds, to turn a phrase. The best thing about our giving is that it produces thanksgiving. Now verse 13 and following, and we'll wrap this up, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from the confession of the gospel of Christ. And the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. He lands it right where it starts. The source of all that we do here is because of the inexpressible gift which we received in Christ Jesus. And that informs our heart. That informs the way we give. We should have wisdom in our giving, but the way we have wisdom in our giving is the way we're walking with the Lord and we see needs. We learn how to meet those needs because we're not storing up for ourselves. We're sowing and reaping and it's building in us a trust of the Lord to continue to do that thing. We will be blessed. Others will be blessed. Our community changes entirely when God's people give out of the abundance that they've received. And remember in that, poverty or wealth are irrelevant to that. We are to give out of the abundance with which we have. And that's according to his perspective, not ours. If we run it through the lens of this world, we see poverty, we see riches. And that will hinder our heart from giving freely. But when we view it from the lens of eternity, that everything I have is on loan, I'm to steward it well. When Jesus comes and receives his church, none of that goes with us. We all know that. We've said it. You've heard it. But do we live according to it? I pray that's the truth for us. Let me pray this morning. Lord, I thank you for this morning. And Lord, I thank you for your provision. I thank you for the provision of your people. For there have been times in my life where I've had needs and I've asked and I recall a specific time where I asked for help and I remember the struggle that I felt in that ask. But it was so deeply meaningful to see a need met that my trust in you grew, my trust in your people was more firmly established, Lord, that I was not alone in anything that I had before me. And that comes as a result of the grace with which you have given each and every one of us. And I pray that in receiving that act of grace, Lord, it prompts our heart to be graceful to others as well in goodwill and loving kindness and favor for your glory and for our good. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.